Welcome to New Caribbean Voices, People Tree Press's literary podcast, featuring the best literature from the Caribbean region and diaspora. My name is Malaika Booker, and I am the curator and host for this podcast series. In this episode, we'll be featuring two poets. The first poet, Sunny Senate Varakni, and I will be in conversation. We'll be speaking about her writing shed and writing spaces. We'll also talk a little bit about the um, Colonial Countryside project that Senny's working on, where she is commissioned by the National Trust and People Tree Press to work at Sudbury Hall. We'll be looking at mentoring and talking about her mentoring process with Mimi Kofati. But most importantly, we'll be talking about Unknown Soldiers, Senny's latest collection, which was a Poetry Book Society recommendation. Marvin Thompson, the second poet featured in this episode, is also had his book, Road Trip, recommended by the Poetry Book Society. So that's something that they both share in common. He will be reading a poem for us from that collection. Sunny Senek Farakmi was born and raised in Leeds and is of English and Sri Lankan heritage. Um, She's given readings, performances and workshops in the UK, in the US, in Canada, South Africa, Egypt and Kuwait and currently works as a freelance writer, mentor, trainer and creative consultant. Her debut collection, Wild Cinnamon and Winter Skint, was published in 2007 by People Tree Press and The Heart of It, her second collection, um, was also published by People Tree Press. Today we're going to be speaking about her book Unknown Soldiers, which is the latest collection that's absolutely superb. The other thing I wanted to say before we went on is um, both Semi and I were fellows of the Complete Works Programme for Diversity and Quality in British Poetry. Um, So it's a pleasure to be able to sit down and speak to her today. I'm here in my flat. Sitting across from me at my orange table is Seni Senekvarakni, and we're going to be talking about her poetry book, Unknown Soldier, which was a poetry book society recommendation published by People Tree. Seni, hello. Hello. Hi. How are you doing? I'm, I'm good, yeah. I'm enjoying being back in Leeds, my, my birth town. Um, ah. Yeah. So where do you live now? I live in Derbyshire now. Okay. okay. Yeah. And I hear a little bird told me that you have a writing space, the envious writing space. I do. I have a beautiful wooden um, writing. I wouldn't call it a shed even because it feels more luxurious than a shed. It's very warm, very well insulated writing space in the garden. Yes. So I can see it's got a lot of light coming in and I can sit and look at the garden and watch the birds while I'm writing. So do you have Amazing. a routine with your writing? Uh, when I've got um, when I've got a deadline to work to, then I make myself have a routine. When I'm in between um, projects, um, which I kind of am now, uh, having just finished, obviously finished the book, but also I've handed in my um, work for Colonial Countryside, which is a commission I've been working on. So. I kind of have a bit of a pause and I just need to 
yeah, wait and get back into it. So then what I'm doing generally is is just writing my journal every day. Um, so I try in the morning to just, whatever, just write anything. Um, and um, what I find is when I've got something I really need to finish, if I go into that space, that physical space, which is out in the garden, but indoors, <clears throat> um, I... I don't know, something happens really. I'm away from all the distractions and I'm away from all that kind of research you end up doing on the internet, you know, as a way of distracting yourself from... So there's no internet access in the shed? No, no. And do you take your mobile phone into the shed? I do take my mobile phone in sometimes, but if I really want to just get down to doing the work... I try not to take anything, actually. I I sometimes take my little, little laptop to if I'm wanting to sort of type things up. But the best thing is if I just go in there with a notebook ah. and nothing else. Tell us a bit about this colonial project that you mentioned. <clears throat> it sounds interesting. Yeah, it's um, it's a commission from a project called Colonial Countryside. Ten writers. Um, it's a collaboration between... Um, I think the project started in the University of Leicester. And it's a collaboration between... Um, the University, National Trust and People Tree. Um, and what each of the writers is um, commissioned to do is to focus on a particular National Trust property and look at the colonial connections. Um, and uh, I've, I've actually been based in responding to um, a place called Sudbury Hall, which is relatively near where I live. And um, But I've also had the opportunity um, to go to some other National Trust properties because what I'm looking at in particular is a painting that's in Sudbury Hall, um, which is one of the... quite a lot of paintings in different National Trust properties um, which have black children in the photograph and they're all painted around the time of uh, when the slave trade was... Um, in operation at its height and because I've written a poem in the past about um, a child in a, pa- in a painting a black child in a painting um, I was really excited in the, to find that in my house that I'd been assigned there's another one and so I've been writing the, the voice of that child mm-hmm. and then having discovered there are historians working with us and one of the historians um Miranda Kaufman sent me um, a PowerPoint with all these other examples of uh, paintings in other houses. So, I've, I've, so far, I've been to another four houses around the country, looking at these paintings. And what my plan is, as a personal project, is to write the voices of all these children eventually. Mm. And um, what's it like working with a historian, you know? Usually we're in the archives or we're in books, you know, doing massive research for one little poem. But yeah, here yeah. you have a, a poet, a, a historian that you're talking to. What's that like? Yeah, it's great because what happens is I, I sort of go into the house and I look at, say, the name of the of the woman that's in this portrait, one of the women connected to the family. And uh, I say, OK, is this... A woman and she's called Lady Young and she was married to so-and-so and do we know anything about her and how she came to be in this painting with this child and and then um, uh, Corrine who's the the kind of uh, coordinator of the project she sort of 
sends that message out and somebody will get back to me. Usually it's Miranda that's been getting back. You say, oh, this is what I've found out. Here are the references. Here's where you, a link where you might find out more. So it's kind of the first bit of the work is done, really. Um, oh, and, right. and I can... And- go and follow that up if I want to. So it's, yeah, it's great. It's a great have resource. Have you been it? Yeah. Have you yeah. made any discoveries as a writer on it? Um, I think what I've um, re-remembered is that, um, uh, and this is something that relates to my new book in a way, is that the process of trying to discover the voice of somebody else is, um, is something that I really... I love doing, and I, and it it's quite a slow process. Mm. I can't rush it, no, you know. Yeah. So I sit with this image of this. I mean, I say with the image, I'm, I'm not actually literally sitting looking at it all the time, but it's in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got a copy of it on my computer, but I, I carry it. It's almost like I carry this child around with me in my life right. as I'm just doing all, all sorts of other things, thinking... You know, and and then waiting, and then at a kind of completely random moment, I, I sort of hear the tone of the voice, um, and it sort of came to me, like not when I'm sitting there. Oh, I've got to write this poem. The tone of voice of this boy in this portrait suddenly came to me, and um, and then I'll maybe write some notes, and then I'll go back, and then when I'm sitting, actually trying to do the poem, I've got. It's like it's like unlocking something because mm. well, even though I haven't got all the words, I've got I've got the I've got the the sort of measure of him somehow. Do you think living there's this gestation period? So living, walking around, having him there's this there's this whole physicality, there's this whole in everyday life, there's something yeah. happening in the subconscious in the head. Yeah, that's kind of like helping you. So when you get back to the shed, you're kind of prepared in a way. Yeah, yeah, of, it is. It's like. This. It really does feel like carrying some. Th- it's either an idea or a character or something around with me, mm. um, and I'm not aware. You know, it's a sort of subconscious thing. Yeah, mm. and then when when I give myself that clear space, then it's like it's almost like I open the door. Okay, you can come in now. I've got you know, oh. and then I kind of write you out in a way. I think that's what it is. Yeah, we're going to yeah. come back to that because obviously that process. Um, happening on your own sword and we're going to talk about that such a fascinating and beautiful energetic project so um but before we do both of us were um you know were um we're alumni of the complete works project which was a um and we were the first kind of we were the first kind of participants we were the guinea pigs (laughs) yeah um the complete works project um designed by bernadine everisto responding to um a report saying less than one percent of um, writers of color were being published in mm-hmm. the publishing industry, but mm-hmm. there was this whole kind of, you know, huge amount of poets in the landscape performing, and so this was a kind of developmental program, and mm-hmm. we all worked with mentors. Um, how was Complete Works for you, and um, you know, and, and and what did it change? How was working with a mentor? Who was your mentor? Okay, and how did it impact you? You know, your first book came out at the end of that process. Um, yeah. So I just wanted to know okay. because, you know, yeah. we're, we're in, a few years away from that. We are, quite a few years, actually. More than ten, yeah. in fact. <laughs> um, yeah, actually, it it happened for me after my first book had come out because I'd already got 
my yeah, first collection yeah. with yeah, People Tree. Second, yeah, um, yeah, it's fine. But what what I um, what hap- what it meant for me really was um, it was a fantastic opportunity at exactly the right time in my life because um, it was quite a time of upheaval personally, um, and what Complete Works became for me was a kind of anchor that was. I mean, writing's always been a personal anchor for me in the midst of all sorts of ups and downs. Um, and what Complete Works did was it was almost like gave that anchor a bit, bit more weight <laughs> somehow um, and also gave me a community of writers who were in that same process. So it was absolutely the best timed kind of intervention in my writing life ever, I would say, because um, for my first um, collection, my manuscript had been sent just for a, a kind of uh, a reading to Mimi Calvati, and I'd met her once, and she'd given me some kind of feedback on it, um, but that was it, basically, and um, I always felt like, oh, you know, I'd really like more of that. Um, she's like a zeitgeist. Yes, she? She, and you know, she so just, she just kind of looked at my work, and somehow she was able to, she was able to get what my voice was. You know, it's like she's not trying to influence you uh, with her way of being or her voice. She sort of gets what your voice is and can give you the the kind of encouragement and feedback to do what you need to do. Um, and um, I remember one of the most, um, one of the best things she said to me, so then, let me go back a bit. So then when I got on the complete works and I was told that I'd be able to have a mentor paid for for like two years, um, uh, I said I'd really like to have Mimi Colvati if it's possible. Well, we're not sure because she's quite busy at the moment and we think she's taking time out. Anyway, luckily, she said yes. Um, and one of the first things she said to me was, um, you know, um, you've got the voice. You've got the voice uh, of a poet. Um, what you need to work on a bit more is the craft. Mm. And she said, that's a brilliant place to be because if you had the craft but not the voice it would be really hard to help you. But because you've got the voice, I can do the work. So she said, uh, you could just be like, stay as you are, you know, and it's good poetry and whatever. She said, or, or you could decide to work more on your craft and then you sort of raise in the bar for yourself. And, and what does she mean by yeah. work on the craft? What, what did you have to do? Um, it was really helping me to become a very um a good editor for myself to really to be able to see how i could get the best out of a poem so you know you have something down and to be able to learn the process of i know that that could be better and i think what she helped me to do is is um make poems that were the best that they could be in that moment, you know. And I know you always go back to poems and say, maybe I could have done, even after they're published. But, you know, the, the, it, it was sort of made me um, be able to look at my work more 
intelligently as the word coming to mind I'm not sure if that's the right word but with more of a sense of um, this is how I could um, improve it you know this is how I could make it help it to say what I really want it to say and did you have mm. to practice with any form did you have to use any formal constraints did she recommend you read anything or did she you know how did you okay she you recommended that I should read a lot more poetry um she recommended that I should buy if I liked a poet that I should get their full collections and read the collection and get a sense of who they were because up until then although I did have poets that I um I liked reading I tended to read sort of in anthologies uh -huh. and you know not actually um she was sort of saying in a way read them like you'd read a novel you yes. know you buy that book and you write and you and you you really sort of understand what that poet is doing right. and how so they're writing the yeah from who've from, yeah. from, from, done that and yeah. what what if you think about what you like then what is it you like about it and how have they managed to achieve that and mm. so that was one thing so she, she she kind of trained you to read as a writer yes. to read for the ingredients that you yeah. need to place in your own work yeah. to add to your to what you you already yeah. accomplished yeah that's yeah. right mm. yeah she did do that mm. and she um and in terms of the form, um, <clears throat> she um, she'd do things like, what came to mind was, so I'd written this poem and um, it was it was about a kind of end of a relationship and um, she got back to me and she said, yeah, this is a great poem and I'm seeing a pantoum in it. And I'm like, okay. Um, and, and she said, It'll take a lot of work. It might take you several months to get a decent pantoum out of this. But I think it'll be worth it. And I'm like, yeah, okay, yeah. So so then, um, because I'd actually written a pantoum in my first collection, that I don't think was a particularly... I mean, it was good, but it you know, wasn't a particularly uh, well-crafted one, necessarily. Um, I knew what the form was, but um, what I in that process with her, I kind of understood the way that um, you can sort of change the syntax around in it and mm. um, just make things more, I don't know, make it come alive more mm. in a way, mm. rather than it being a form that you fit your words into, that the language sort of takes charge of it somehow. Yes, yes. And so I'd send her a draft and she'd say, mm, yeah, I like that. Mm, but no, I'm not sure about that, Stanzi. Maybe you need to change that a little bit. Yeah, that's not working. Right. She'd send me it back and then I'd work on it again. And it really did take me several months. And um, and I do, I'm really pleased that I did all that work mm. because I do like, you know, what came out of it. And it became... Um, I don't know, it became bigger than than what it had started off as, in a way. It became bigger than the the, the message or the, you know, than the emotion that was in it. It, mm. it sort of held it in a different way, which felt appropriate as well. So, um, yeah, I was, I was pleased. And that's the sort of thing. She did that with one of the poems that I had in the Complete Works anthology, the one based on the painting, Sitting for the Mistress. And she sort of said, yeah, um, I think if you worked on the um, making it more 
blank verse, you know, so which means you've got to be really clear about the meter in it and make sure that the lines have all got, you know, the right meter in. Uh, I think it would really improve this poem. So, you know, you've got a poem that you think is great and then she tells you how to make it even better, mm. um, which and, is, yeah. And, and now Unknown Soldier. So Unknown Soldier, this is, an, this is an, a, a quite fascinating project for me because for me it kind of brings up for me the language of photos mm-hmm. and you've been talking about paintings but also how do we write into a silence or into a space where you know um, someone has passed on like your father you discover these photos you discover this history of him mm. but he's not there to talk to in the imagination mm. tell us about the genesis of this project okay. you know yeah um i had these this album of photos there are two albums um and they were always there in our house and, and what were the photos of they were of um they were of my father, a lot of photographs of my father during the Second World War. Uh, some of them in the training, um, the the training camp at Catterick, um, and um, a lot, most of them out in the desert, um, in the desert campaign in North Africa. Um, photographs of. Um, the camp, really, and photographs of my dad. My dad was a signal man, and so photographs of him with his with his transmitters and cleaning the machines, and with other um, soldiers, and uh, just a sort of sense of camaraderie, friendship um, amongst them. And um, I remember, as a child, knowing these, looking at these photographs, and. I also remember that he never really said very much more about them, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and I never asked him about them. So um, after he died, um, they came to me because I'm the I'm the the person in our family who collects everything. I'm the archivist. So my siblings, it's like anything that is there comes to me. So the photo albums came to me. Um, there were some letters that he sent from the troop ship, um, not many, but a few letters that he sent when he was on his first journey from England to North Africa. Um, I had copies of them, various papers, his soldier's passbook. So I had this little archive of my dad in the war mm-hmm. and I wanted... Uh, well, what I did for a long time was I carried around this regret about well, why did I never ask him? Why did I never ask him who who took these photographs? And because I'm um, a photographer myself, I, I I was looking at the photos thinking, it's not just that they're really good photographs in terms of capturing something about the life of soldiers outside of the battles, if you like, but they um, the, the shots of my father are so... Um, you know when you see a photograph that's taken by and you think this is a photograph of somebody that's been taken by somebody who thinks a lot of them mm-hmm. um in in all the photographs it's like he's the focus of it you know that's what the photograph's about and uh, i was just fascinated by the fact that somebody would have taken so many pictures of him and and that then he would have copies of them as well 
Um, so I, for a while, I, I kind of thought, oh, you know, I wish I knew, and I wish I knew who the photographer was. Why did I never ask him and all of that? Um, and then I just decided I was going to try and write something about it. Um, and did it then, start off as a book, or did it just start off as just writing into one, and it continued in that way? It was a kind of germ of an idea to, to that maybe it would become, I thought, a pamphlet. I thought the photographs, you know, and a few poems, maybe it'd be a little pamphlet and I'd ask people tree if they'd be up for doing it and um and it and it sort of grew and the photographer came it was that process I was doing I, I'd got together with some friends, <clears throat> some writer other writers and um we were doing this exercise where you just looked for a photograph. Just a random photograph online I think it was. And I found this photograph of a soldier. And I started to write in that soldier's voice as if he was a photographer. And he was there, that 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 person, that that um, soldier who took all those photographs, started to kind of be a real person in a way. Mm. Um, so then I went back to the photographs that I'd got and <clears throat> I sort of identified somebody in those photographs that might well have been this, this man. And... Um, wrote a piece which is the piece in the book called love of my life which was um one of the few pictures where he is in it as well as my father mm -hmm. um and um it just kind of grew from there really and did you have to do research as well into that time into i did that, yeah yeah to get specific and into the specific model of the camera because there's such specific things also yeah. about the camera yeah i did do that M my dad used to have a camera that um was a particular, one of those cameras that has a concertina that pulls out. And uh, so I sort of researched and re tried to remember what that was and looked it all up. And um, and then that became the camera that had taken the photographs. And so then that's weaved into the story as a camera that then was um, bought, you know, by my father because of, this friend who had one like that, that kind of thing. So, um, I ju it, yeah, all those things sort of weaved together in a way. Um, and I researched, I had to do quite a lot of research about what it was like, what kinds of things uh, signalmen did in the war, mm -hmm. what kind of jobs they did, what kind of, um, you know, how much they were, they were kind of vulnerable to danger. And... Um, yeah, reading up accounts on internet sites, you know, wartime memories, things of people who were actually there. Um, and uh, I gathered that information, really, from that. And yeah. it's really a fascinating um, book. It's a book of reportage. It's a book of imagined reportage. <coughs> but it's also a book um, that writes this history that's been mm. raised, this mm. history of, um, you know, the participation of people from the colonies yeah. in, in the war. And also this writing into this absence, but they've turned into these really tender elegies, really, to your father. Could you share something with us? Yeah, yeah, I could do. Um, <clears throat> the book has got, uh, it's a combination, really, of um, the things written in the voice of the photographer and a few things in the voice of my father. And then a lot of poems in my own voice, which are responses to... to um, 
what I've been reading and learning about. And I'm not quite sure which ones to read, though. Um, <clears throat> I'll try this one. Never a word. I'm trying to decipher the paperwork from the MOD or match the thumbprint in his soldier service book and the story sways away from me the way he'd sway with my mum at those dinner dances in his leather-soled dancing shoes. He tried to teach me the steps of a waltz or a foxtrot, me with my mod haircut long down one side over my eyes and two corkscrew curls by my ears. This digging is exhausting and never a word from him. What about his memories that went underground and stay there with the weight of his headstone on them? Oh, thank you. Beautiful. And um, lastly, a poetry book society recommendation. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? What does that mean? What did that mean to you as a writer? <laughs> you know, because these writers read hundreds of books in the poetry book society that come out for, yeah. you know, for a, a particular period. And then your book raised to the top and was recommended, you yeah. know. Um, yeah. That was really exciting, actually. Um, my, my, my second collection got one of those kind of mentions as other books, other books to read, you know, in the in that quarter. Um, so this was like, yes, this is like the next the next level in a way. Um, and it was really exciting. Uh, Anna sent me a message saying, you know. There's some good news. You've you've been you've got a PBS recommendation. And that's Hannah Bannister from. That's People Hannah Press. from yeah from yeah. People Tree Press. And um, so she yeah she got in and then they got in touch with me from PBS and they wanted um, and then I saw that the new pamphlet has these like A5 photographs in because it used to just have kind of no, it used to be a little yeah it's quite it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's kind of book form you yeah. know so then it's I'm really like oh okay I've got to find a really good yeah. photograph and uh, and then of course they want you to write something about the process mm. um the thing that was most exciting actually was waiting to see what the the review that they put in uh said about my book because um I think that's something that I find is 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 quite hard to get people to do for you. You kind of you say, "Oh, can you can you write a review?" You know, for my book, and it's I mean, it's quite a big piece of work for somebody to do. So that was a really really good thing for and, me. And were you happy with what they wrote? Or yes, I was you, actually. You yeah, think they saw what you were trying to do. I think so. I think okay. they did. Yeah. The other thing that happened, probably not long after that, was that then Hannah contacted me and said. Um, you've been chosen as one of the books for National Poetry Day. So uh, on the National Poetry Day website, um, my book was listed there as well. Uh, wow. And then they asked me to do a blog. And uh, yeah, so it was all kind of happening, you know. It was, it was very exciting. Well, it's a beautiful and necessary collection. Um, thank you. It's been a pleasure yes. talking to you. We could talk for ages. There's so much I yeah. would love to ask you about this book. But, you know, um, if you want to know about this book or what's happening, um, yeah, you're going to have to go on the People Tree website and kind of buy it. Or, you know, look for those reviews from the Poetry Book Society and um, the National Poetry Society website. Thank you, Sally. It's really interesting sitting down and speaking to Sally Sullivan-Rackley. Her poetry collection um, is so fascinating, all about photographs and memories. 
But what I found really moving was that last couplet, you know, in the poem that she shared with us. When she asked, what about the memories that went underground and stayed there with the weight of his headstone on them? So poignant. I think that will stay and float with me for a while. We're still going to stay with poetry and um, we're going to hear from Marvin Thompson. Marvin Thompson is a poet who was born in London to Jamaican parents and now teaches English in mountainous South Wales. He has an MA in creative writing and was one of the three poets selected by Nine Arches Press for the Primus Two Mentoring Scheme. His work is described as exciting, dramatic and a virtuoso performance. Um, he, he won the third place in Ambit Magazine's International Poetry Competition. And in 2019, his magical realist war poem, The Many Reincarnate. In 2019, his magical realist war poem, The Many in Reincarnations of Gerald Oswald Archibald Thompson, was submitted by Long Poem Magazine for the Forward Prize for Best Poem. Today, Marvin will be reading to us from his collection, Road Trip, and he'll be reading a poem called The Baboon Chronicles, Part 2. The Baboon Chronicles, Part 1, Stephen. You smile at me on my doorstep, invite me round your house for drinks, then ask me to recount my dealings with the boys in blue. Do you also extend this kind of hospitality to your new white neighbours? No wonder the estate agent kept banging on about this street being baboon quiet. It's the only, no, I'm leaving. And no, I don't need coffee. I live across the road. Actually, wait. Here's a story for you. It was a Saturday morning, about a month ago. You know, one of those spiteful mornings that seems to promise rain, but just gets hotter and hotter. I was drinking an Earl Grey while stood on dust sheets. My bathroom looked like a desert road. Having sanded the walls, I was ready to paint my first coat of ash blue. Then I remembered that I'd lost my cutting-in brush. Outside, the baboons were into their braying, one of the fat males bearing its off-white teeth to a female. I drove to Screwfix in Pontuenith, the sky bone white. Halfway to the industrial estate, the traffic stopped and the morning sticky heat closed in on me. I could picture it, a brute of a baboon, hunched over in the middle of the carriageway, drinking in the pleasure of its ticks being picked, while enraged drivers turned the air blue. As I inched past a bus stop, I noticed one of the monkeys was sat roadside, grinning at me, its teeth like blades. <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, the irony. The bus stops down that road are all plastered with posters telling us to vote yes for the cull. The whites 
of the primate's eyes were murky. There was a blueness to its face, as if it was sick and it was swaying on the curb, the morning growing ever more sweaty and oppressive. Yep, it was drunk. <laughs> I agree, you must be vermin to leave bowls of liquor for baboons to lap up. I've seen this video where men are laughing while feeding baboons gin from baby bottles on one of those desolate coastal roads. Anyway, by the time I reached Screwfix, I was vexed and in need of a drink of chamomile and honey. The store was empty apart from the two white women behind the counter. Browsing the Argos style catalogue gave the morning a sense of calm. But I soon sensed the lady's eyes crawling over me, all blue rinse and rage. Their skin evoked Britain's colonial past and something in me blew. I approached the counter. The shorter lady, wearing a red baboons out wristband, snarled, Susie, you serve him. Like a man in angry mourning, my pulse thumped and thumped, howling, seeping in from the road. Susie reached out and I passed her my order slip, her hair a lank, greasy white. She toyed with, with a computer, then disappeared into the warehouse. For drinks? She took that long, my temper grew. This is not the morning for drunk white women to shut up you boon! My fist rolled hard as a road. A millisecond from diving over the counter, I heard someone clear their throat behind me. <coughs> a police officer stood by the door, baton in hand, grinning. Wow, the Baboon Chronicles, what an arresting and quite surreal poem. Um, I love the way Marvin reads and brings the poems, the poem alive. I felt like I was in his house with him and walking the street and in that shop. And the way he seems as if he's speaking to you realistically, laughing sarcastically in the poem. And now we've come to the end of uh, another episode of New Caribbean Voices. We've been keeping company today with Sunny, Senator Farakni, and Marvin Thompson. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you for listening to New Caribbean Voices, People Tree Press's literary podcast. I'd like to end by thanking our producer, Melody Triumph, the Arts Council of England, and Clarissa Luard Award for their support. Please look out for future episodes of New Caribbean Voices. I'm Malika Booker, and I've been your presenter.